Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Simsisms. A little more hay in the barn. And just again on TV yesterday to go, wait, they got a few more, you know, a little more hay in the barn this year. Is that a saying? There's more hay in the barn? I think there is. Is That that is a saying. I don't know if I use it correctly. There's more plays in the playbook as in there's more hay in the barn, right? Okay. (laughs) It's a Simsism. Simsisms. (laughs) You know, I saw that one in the document that we share to kind of guide us through the show. And it's like, I don't remember him saying that. So I'm glad that wasn't a Simsism. I missed. I don't know that it's quite a Simsism, although the saying is the hay is in the barn, meaning we're ready to go. I guess you could say there's still some hay in the barn. I don't, I'm not, you know what? I'm not ready to say it's a Simsism. I'll defend you here, Chris. Thank you. It's not accidental scholar either. No. I just don't think it's complete and total bastardization of the, of the, uh, of the term. That, that's all I'll say. Thanks, all right, man. Uh, Thanks uh, for sticking up for you, me, you, lawyer Mike. I you're welcome. That. You're welcome. Uh, Pete, what happened to the, there's the Titans Seahawks. Pete's, Pete's making changes to the documents, like flashing lights, like we're in Las Vegas here. All right. The Titans beat the Seahawks in overtime on Sunday, 33 to 30. It took Derrick Henry a while to get going. What did you see in studying the film as to the transition from the Seahawks being able to bottle him up to the Seahawks? not being able to stop him at all. Yeah, well, the the Seahawks are like all or nothing, a little bit on both sides of the ball, and they force the issue, especially on defense. They love to put a lot of people at the line of scrimmage, maybe scare you out of the run game. They drop back, play zone coverages, you know, some creative blitzes. And, yeah, the Titans had issues with it a little bit as far as the run game was concerned early. I mean, the Seahawks are – it's Pete Carroll. It's Ken Norton Jr. They're old school. You know, they're one of those like, you're not going to run on us. And they did a good job stopping the run early. But, like, they never really stopped the Titans all day long. Yeah, the Titans settled for field goals. You saw Julio Jones catch that ball in the back in the end zone, and the old toe-heel thing came into play where his heel went out of bounds, and they didn't get a touchdown there. You know, the, the strip sack fumble 
which was, you know, just a great great play by Alton Robinson, tight end blocking a defense end on a play-action pass. Like, look good on the board. Look, our tight end blocked him. Oh, that's right. That's a pass rusher, and this is not a pass blocker. So there was issues like that. But ultimately what got the run game going was – one, Derrick Henry, his first touchdown run, just being a, 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 an amazing Hall of Fame running back. Like this right here. This is, this is not blocked well. There's nothing good other than he saw the cutback lane and reversed field, and he's one of the fastest there is in the business. But they started to show, as you see on this play here, a little more diversity in the run game. Got, out, got away from the outside zone play every time and then had some design cutback runs. And that's what this was, Mike, right here. Play this. Rewind this real quick just one more time so we can kind of show the start of this if you guys don't mind. This play is made to look like they're going to run to the right side, right? Mike, you'll see Tannehill sticks the ball out. But it's all about coming back to this backside here and hoping to get a one-on-one -on -one with your Hall of Fame running back on Trey Flowers, who's a DB and doesn't really want to tackle him and shouldn't be there to have to tackle him. But that was great play design there. Seattle was really overreacting, overplaying to those outside zone schemes, and they kind of found their, their rhythm of you know changing it up a little bit playing to the aggressiveness of the Seattle Seahawks, and Ryan Tannehill played really well too. The Seahawks led up 532 yards of offense. Wow. That's concerning. You know, like I said, the Titans kind of moved the ball all day long. They just didn't capitalize until the second half. Yeah, it really is amazing to see a Seahawks defense at home give up that kind Ooh. of yardage, encouraging for the Titans to wake it up yeah. after an uninspiring week one home loss to the Cardinals. That Julio Jones play you mentioned, by the way, right. I have been aware for about a decade that that's the rule. It came up in college over the weekend. Mike Pereira explained it, I think, during the West Virginia-Virginia Tech game. The idea that you can do the toe tap and fall out of bounds and you don't have to get your whole foot in, but if your toes hit pointing toward the field and your heels haven't come down, if that heel comes down on the line, you're not in bounds even if you get your toes in. The whole foot has to get in if it's in the process of coming down right. at the time you catch the ball. And and some Titans fans were upset about the call, but it was the right call right because call. thanks to the dark shoe, and maybe if you wear a white shoe, it's not clear and obvious. <laughs> thanks to the dark shoe, it's clear and obvious that the heel came down on the white line. So it wasn't a catch. And that's the rule. It doesn't come up very often because it's rare that you've got a guy up on his toes facing inward right. with his feet, his heels coming down behind them. But if the heels don't come in, you're not in. No, I, I feel like even watching that game, you know, on Sunday, I, I feel like I'm not sure Julio Jones understood the rule. It sound, it seemed like he was surprised just on the sideline. It doesn't happen often. You're right. It is rare, and I don't think a whole lot of fans know about it. But, hey, the Titans, yeah, you know, A.J. Brown dropped a few balls. You know, they get the run game going. Tannehill's still capable of making a lot of big th plays, throwing the ball. Julio looked good. They got decent tight end play. And they should be excited about their defense, too. Their defense did a lot of good things in the football game. You know, yeah, there was a short field touchdown off that strip sack fumble we talked about. You know, and they just they let up a few big plays. And that's the other thing that I'll say, Mike, that's a little concerning about the Seattle Seahawks offense, too. Like the defense, it's feast or famine. It's like three plays 80 yards or three plays and punt. That's what they are. That's kind of what they've shown to be to this point. And really never sustained a drive all game long other than the two-minute drive they had right before the half. 
Everything else was, hey, we'll, we'll try to make a, you know, oh, the Titans busted a coverage. There's Freddie Swain wide open down the field. And then, a few, of course, a few good game plan design plays to go with it to, to, to make some huge uh, plays. But either way, you know, I don't know how sustainable that is either. So I got question marks about Seattle on both sides of the football as we go into week three. One of the most exciting games of week two that really didn't get the attention it deserved because it was a 4.05 Eastern start in that window that featured Cowboys Chargers at 4.25. Vikings at the Cardinals, the 34-33 win by Arizona, thanks to Greg Joseph missing not just an extra point, but a field goal that would have won the game. What stood out to you when you looked at that film? Well, the the, the weapons on Arizona, Just the, I think that's the first thing you just look at. It's just hard to match up with them. It really is. When you talk about Chase Edmonds, who looks phenomenal, and Rondell Moore, number two and number four are like, it's like video game stuff with them. They're breaking ankles, making people miss. So that's really special. And then you got Kyler Murray to go along with it, and he's doing the same damn thing, scrambling there in the background. I think that's what's impressive. I do think we see... You know, a, a little bit of a different offensive attack from Arizona that, that we saw than we saw last year. I think I said this to you last week. There's a little more versatility, more formations that are exciting. You know, and really, for the most part, never were really stopped by your Minnesota Vikings at all during the day either, other than self-inflicted wounds. You know, I mean, the pick six and then, of course, the interception down the middle where, you know, Kyler Murray got hit in the face and had his face mask pulled and they didn't call a penalty. Uh, which ended up being an interception to Xavier Woods. But, you know, I think that's the thing I look at more than anything. They are explosive. Kyler Murray's throwing the ball really well. I wish they'd be a little bit more patient with the run because you can see just from the stats, they open up holes, and Edmonds and Connors are capable running backs. Edmonds is on the precipice of being like, to me, it looks like almost a superstar with the way he's looked so far. But I'm excited about them. I really am. But the defense was a little all over the place. And I think that's the thing we got to like look about, look at with the Cardinals as we go forward because they were gashed by a few too many big plays throughout the day from that Vikings run game and everything, especially in the first and half. Sometimes you have a game where you should have lost, but you won and you take it and you learn from it and you treat it like money in the bank. These wins in September are money in the bank that will pay off or not if you don't win them come January. But that was a big win for the Cardinals because they should have lost the game. The 37-yard yeah. field goal should have been made. That is as close to a chip shot yes. as you're going to have in the NFL. Uh, it used to be a 40-yard field goal was impressive, not anymore. Anything from 40 and in, you're expected to make it, and the Vikings continuing a yeah, it's, long run of franchise history of missing key kicks. They missed that one blow the game. The Rondell Moore is exciting. Our, our buddy PFT commenter pointed out at one point over the weekend that basically it's Kyler Murray throwing to Kyler Murray <laughs> when Kyler Murray throws to Rondell Moore. They're the right. same size. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, he's he's lightning in a bottle. He was one of those guys coming out in the draft. He's been hurt. He was hurt the last two years in college football. But when you watch freshman film, you went, oh, my gosh, this guy's a superstar. So he didn't know really what to expect. Is it, does he got the injury bug? But, man, he's hitting on all cylinders right now. You know, gets that the touchdown we just showed there. You know, gets the other 75-yard touchdown where Kyler Murray makes a pass rusher miss. And Patrick Peterson, oddly enough, blows the coverage. I mean, he makes a mental mistake and lets Rondell Moore go free up the sideline for a touchdown. He took the cheese and worried about some underneath DeAndre Hopkins route, and that led to that wide open there altogether. 
You know, the, I thought the Cardinals, I'll say this, you're right. The Vikings should have won the game. I do think the Cardinals are the better team and should not have been in that position to begin with. You know, they just were, they're creative and really athletic on defense, but man, do they mess some things up too, to where like they're not always sound in run fits and in coverage. And you could tell there's a lot of conversation and things going on before the snap. And that's where they got to figure it out. Because in the second half, they played a hair more vanilla and they were all over that Vikings offense. They couldn't really do a whole lot. It was hard for them to sustain drives. And I think Vance Jolts is very creative. You know, maybe he goes back to the drawing board and goes, wait, I don't need to invent the defense to just squash an offense every play. Let's just make sure we're in the right spots. I got enough talent this year to where I don't have to always, you know, be the mad scientist and, and come up with ways to help my defense. By the way, before we take a quick look at what the Vikings did well or not well, Kyler Murray, 5'10", 207. Rondell Moore, 5'7", 180. So, Kyler's uh, a giant Kyler, compared to him. Kyler <laughs> is a giant next to Rondell Moore. The Vikings have the Seahawks and the Browns coming up. 0-4 is a real possibility for this team. They looked a lot better this week against a better opponent than the Bengals. Give Vikings fans some cause for hope and also give them some reason to worry that it could be 0-4. Well, and the hope would be that like you could be easily 2-0. Let's just like let's start right there. So it's not like the world has fallen off. And you know, the, the like Kirk Cousins, the offense has shown the ability to make some big plays where they need to like what what jumped out to me in the second half, Mike, is they ran out of like cool game plan design plays it's like you know they they emptied out their gun in the first half and then they were like oh man we got no more of those those cool plays we ran with Dalvin Cook that kind of exposed them I don't know why they didn't even go back to a few of them one or two more times but that was to me where it just jumped out like they need a they need a little bit more on that side of the ball you know, in case they get in the shootout or in a high-scoring game like we saw the last two weeks. I mean, again, they, they were need there to have to a little more hay in the barn. Right, more they hay, need to have hay in the barn. Exactly right. Exactly right. Yeah. Uh, all right, um, Panthers, Saints. Ooh. A surprising outcome after what we saw from New Orleans Week One. I spoke to Hassan Reddick after the game. He made it clear that their plan was to shut down the running game, get after Jameis Winston, move him off of his spot and force him into mistakes. What did you see on the film? Well, I saw that. You know, the, the Carolinas got it all. I mean, Mike, you know I I love the Carolina Panthers. I've been loving them all preseason. But they got they can play a lot of different ways up front. They got the Jimmies and the Joes to just go, "Wow, they're talented, they're really good." I mean, when you break down their front seven, it's like it's like top 15 pick, top 10 pick. You know, it's top, you know, top 10 pick, top 15 pick at linebacker. Oh, the other linebacker was a top 10 pick. Oh, this guy was a top of the second round pick over here. Oh, this corner's a top 10 pick. You know, that safety's top. They got a lot of talent. And then they got a creative scheme to go along with it. They physically whooped the Saints on both sides of the ball. But ultimately, yeah, they weren't afraid to crowd the line of scrimmage. They totally stopped the run game completely. And you could tell they had a good feel for what the Saints wanted to do in the pass game. The Saints never even could get an offense going. They were so thoroughly dominated. I think it was hard for Sean Payton to get it started. You know, you, you, sometimes you need a few plays to go, hey, wait, this is what we're doing. And now we got a few plays off of that that are going to trick you. And they couldn't ever do that. Jameis Winston couldn't get in a rhythm that way. It was complete domination on that side of the ball uh, for the for the Carolina Panthers defense. 
I, I had some fun yesterday with the Sean Payton post game. Uh, here are our excuses. We don't make excuses. Did you hear our excuses? <laughs> but I think they do have excuse. I, when sure. your offensive coaching staff is gutted, how in the world do you get a game plan properly constructed, implemented, educated, taught? You know, all the stuff that Sean Payton does where he's looking for ideas and plays and all that mad genius stuff. You don't have time to do it if you're doing the jobs of five other people. No, you're right. It's tough. And then when you play a team that's got, you know, talent and physicality and playmakers at the right position, and now there's a scheme to go along with it, like some creative scheme plays, that, that's an uphill climb. And that's where Carolina, you know, Carolina, even on the offensive side of the ball, they can line up and smash you with McCaffrey. And then, oh, wait, we can run play action and bootleg off of those same formations. And Dan Arnold is really good at tight end getting out of the backfield. And of course we got DJ Moore out there who can make plays and then they can just as easily spread the field and go, Hey, here, here we go. We're going to be Drew Brees and the saints now. Hey, DJ Moore slant Christian McCaffrey, 10 yards over the middle. Boom, 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 boom. So they got a little of everything. They have versatility in their approach on both sides of the ball. And when you have that along with a lot of damn good players, uh, that's when you can be a player in the NFC. And I, I expect Carolina to be in this conversation all year long. What do we say about the Jameis Winston mm. experiment? It, it looked like Sean Payton was going to be able to coach the bad Jameis away from him week one. It collapsed week two. I mean, basically it dawned on me watching his two interceptions. He thinks he's Patrick Mahomes, and he isn't. So don't try to be. No. Mahomes can make certain throws that others can't. Don't just try to will yourself into being. This is the, this is a Mahomes throw, but you're not Mahomes. No. See that? You're yes. not Mahomes. No, you're not Mahomes. And you're right. How, so what do you say to him if you're Sean Payton when you're watching this film? What do you tell him to do differently than what he did in that spot? Just go down? Yeah, or go it down. Away or what? Right. You, you just got to say go down. Exactly right. Now, this interception, I'm not mad at that. It's late in the game. He's trying to make something happen and give them one last ditch effort to maybe come back. You know, but that first one, yeah. That, that's the perfect play of abort mission. Can we go back to that first interception if we can in the control room? Because, two, here's the other thing, and this is where we got to give Carolina credit and maybe the Saints offensive staff not being fully there hurt them. You know, there's a number of plays in both games so far for the Carolina defense where it's not necessarily they beat guys up front. They expose the protection plan and get people free like you see here, Mike. You know, they're going to only rush five, but you don't know which five are coming. And the guy up the middle gets free, and that's just a play where you get to go, wait, they won the play, Jameis. They won it. Just live to play another day. We'll punt, whatever. Let's go in at halftime and regroup. Um, so that's where they're going to have to – he's going to continue to have to learn here. But but also – That's a Jim Everett – that's a Jim Everett hit the deck play. Yes. Don't, don't get dragged down by a defender. Don't throw the ball into the end zone. If you have time to throw it away, throw it away. But if all else fails, take a seat. Exactly right. And, and you know, I, I'm sure Sean Payton's going to try to beat that, you know, into his brain a little bit. Uh, they couldn't run the ball. They couldn't do anything. It was a tough day altogether. But, yeah, he's got to realize, too, for his own life, livelihood and everything, you know, when he does those too many plays, that's going to get people chirping again. See, this is why you can't trust him. He's got to understand how to play the politics of the game, too, and realize, like, it's just not worth it that play right there. It's not, yeah, he was open originally. That's what he saw. 
But now it's you've spinned away and ran away. It's three seconds later. He's not open anymore. And that's where he's going to have to learn. Uh, and, you know, the other thing that jumps out to me about the Saints, too, is, hey, they're not opening up the field a whole lot either. So maybe they don't totally trust Jameis yet. First, first two games have been a lot of power run, run formations, and not necessarily the Drew Brees look we're, we've been expecting in, in New Orleans. Uh, maybe that offense grows as we go forward. Coming to a future episode of PFT Live, Simsism, spinned away. We're going to take a break. <laughs> We're going to spinned away here for a second. Kenny Galladay, good news, he wasn't yelling at Daniel Jones on Thursday night. Bad news, he was yelling at offensive coordinator Jason Garrett. We'll comment on that briefly when PFT Live continues right after this. Kind of got you in the, uh, <laughs> during the game, so, you know. Well, you want to explain what happened there in in, in uh, your your point really, of view? Really, you know, that's just come with me a little bit. Uh, really, I've never done like nothing, nothing like that either. But really, just passion and just just being a competitor. Um, you know, um, I love just do anything I can to help the team. You know, and uh, you know, I let the emotion get the best of me. Was the message just get me the ball more? Uh, no, not so much that. Uh, pretty much just you know, Dylan. Dylan it was, Pretty much just me talk, just talking to um, JG a little bit, and you know those that's that's two competitive guys right there, and more so just um, me just want to do anything I can, not so much give me the ball more though. When it happened on Thursday night, we thought it was Kenny Galladay jawing at quarterback Daniel Jones. When you see the clip there at the very right edge of the screen, right. you see the red hair of Jason Garrett. So Galladay wasn't mad at the guy who wasn't, in his view, properly executing the play. He was mad at the guy who is responsible for calling the plays. I don't know that that makes it any better. Game two of his career with the Giants. Chris, what's your perspective on it? Well, I do think it's better. I do. You know, I don't think the optics are good if we got the receiver yelling at the quarterback, at least in that way. Like, you know, you're going to have that. But I will say, like, so th th this happens more than people realize on NFL sidelines. Top-end receivers don't feel involved in the game, and they start to yell at the OC about, you know, giving the ball. Or, I got this. Or, they can't cover me doing that. And I think that's all they're trying to say right there. You know, I think that's really what it comes down to. This is not like crazy, but it's the, it's the Daniel Jones aspect that everybody wants to jump on, especially here in the New York area, because people are looking for ways to jump on him. But I, I don't think this is that crazy in today's NFL. It happens a lot. Where it's bad for Kenny Galladay, Mike, is just like, you know, you just got here and you were hurt for most of the training camp and preseason and all that. Like, let's just, just like, let's get in the season and, and start yelling once you're hitting on all cylinders, then okay, you can do that. But right now, he's like, I don't even think totally 100% himself yet, uh, and he's doing that. That's where it doesn't look good on him. He did say that he spoke to Garrett after the game and everything is fine. There's a certain hierarchy, level of respect yeah. that needs to be afforded. There's a line between players and coaches. That's where it's a bad look as it relates to the coach relationship. You don't want to see that kind of demonstrative attitude, although Tom Brady has done it plenty of times over the years and he gets praised for it, so who knows? But Bill O'Brien has heard it from a, from Brady and Josh McDaniels has as well. But the, the message is this, cameras are everywhere. Yeah. When we return, goats in a bad way draft for week two. We'll do that next year on PFT Live.
And here's the beautiful thing about it. We're, I'm on the sideline back there, and it's going for two. It's going for fourth down. We're calling timeouts. We're just fighting our asses off. And I look back, what should we do? And I got 10 guys. Go for it. Like I said, go for it. Look, I look back, Nick Boyle, it's in his Go for it. He goes, go for it. Everybody said, what? Go for it. And that's what you did tonight. That's what you did tonight. From the beginning of the game to the end of the game, you went for it. And that's what wins. Always. No matter what. <laughs> that's awesome. That's why John Harbaugh has been the head coach of the Baltimore uh -huh. Ravens since 2008. Moments like that makes me want to get up out of my chair, go run into a wall and bounce off of it and bust my ass and land on the floor. That's the kind of inspiration that comes from that. But that's the moment. That's the When we look back on the Ravens in January, maybe that's where we say that's when it all kind of fell together for them in 2021. Yeah, uh, no doubt. I mean, that's one of those moments that does bring a locker room together. And then like he has the ability to recognize it and build off of it like right go for it like, I wouldn't be shocked if we see t-shirts in the Ravens uh, soon that goes go for it right that's how those kinds of things manifest themselves in an NFL locker room like and, and it will bring it together to go like hey we're in this the coaches together everything everything like that it was really cool to see Harbaugh is amazing I got a lot of respect for him when you start listing the top coaches in the NFL it's very easy to overlook John Harbaugh you should not overlook no. John Harbaugh. He yeah. has just been there. We take him for granted because every year teams are competitive. Every year they're in the conversation. Every year they're relevant. They've won a Super Bowl. They've gotten close to others. And maybe now beating the Chiefs will give them the kick in the ass they need to get back there again. All right. Goats in a bad way. Chris, take the first pick. Week two. Well, do, I mean, do we want to take the kicker from the Vikings or do we just like not like, I mean. You take whoever you want. I don't you can really take whoever want you want. To. Nah, I'm going to go with Zach Wilson first. I'm going to go there. The hell with the kicker from the oh, Vikings. Oh, your know. guy. Yeah, it's all your right. Your guy. That's it's right. Your that fault just shows the Jets you. took him. I don't show preferential treatment. You play bad, you play bad. I mean, that there's no other way to say it. Yeah, Zach Wilson. Hey, that was a learning, uh, you know, a learning moment for him. The New England Patriots. You're going to be playing them twice a year. As long as Bill Belichick's there, you're going to go through some phases of ugly football, especially when your Jets team is not in the same stratosphere as them on the roster yet. So, yeah, learn from that. But, man, you know, four interceptions, one was not his fault. The other three were egregiously his fault, and he tried to make magic, you know, out of nothing. And that's where he just got to learn the NFL is a different game. And like Robert Sala said after the game, you know, or like Mac Jones played in the game, it's okay to kind of play ugly and manage a game every now and then. Keep your team in it. And then maybe you start to like unleash it late in the fourth quarter, like he did week one against the Carolina Panthers. He did a lot of those things. So hopefully he learns it, but go in a bad way for week two, Zach Wilson. I'm going to go to the game that allowed John Harbaugh to go for it on fourth down because Clyde Edwards Alaire dropped the ball second straight week, a key moment with a game winning field goal in range. First week it was Damian Harris. This week it's Clyde Edwards-Alaire. What is a running back supposed to do? Hold on to the football, especially with the game in crunch time. Edwards-Alaire dropped the ball. And he's been kind of a disappointment. Definitely. Kind of maybe an understatement. Definitely. Remember, you and I were both all over. The Chiefs taking him with the 32nd pick in 2020. He's exactly what they needed. He hasn't been what they needed. And that moment there 
that that was where the bubble was burst on the Chiefs always find a way. They always find a way. They always find a way. And then, uh-oh, there it is. Because we felt it coming. Everything was pointing toward Harrison Butker winning the game with a walk-off field goal. Nope, out came the ball. So, Edward Zelaya, one of the goats of week two. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And, you know, just a broader topic speaking on him, you're right. He's been underwhelming. You know, he's got a little of the Peter Warwick syndrome where, yeah, it's a lot of quickness and he makes you miss and does all that, but it's for a four-yard gain. He can't run away from anybody. And that's where I drop the ball evaluating him. And I think it's one of the weaknesses of the Chiefs team right now. The Chiefs open up some holes in the screen game and the run game at times, but there's not enough speed at the running back position to get through it. They need a little bit more of a straight line home run hitter that way. I think they're missing that. All right, do we want to go to the next pick or should we go to commercial? Next pick, yes. Okay, sorry. One more round, then we'll take a break. I'm going to Mahomes. I'm going the same game. Screw that. I'm going with him. I don't even care. You're up 11 points. It's third and 12 at the 49-yard line. Well, what are you doing? You're getting tackled and you throw a ball over the middle. I mean, that's stuff that, you know, yes, we've seen him come through magically more times than not. But I think he even said after the game, worst interception of his career. Yeah, it was stupid. No other way to say it. You know, punt the ball away. You're at midfield. Make the Ravens go the whole field to score to score, and get back in the game. That was really disappointing, and I'm going to give Mahomes. That's probably the first time he's ever been in the goat in a bad way draft. Mahomes looking like Jameis Winston. Right. That's what that, that was. Right. So let's go with Jameis Winston. I mean, we have to go with Jameis Winston. The two interceptions, and it just it was very underwhelming. He goes from MVP candidate to same old Jameis. So Jameis to cap round two. We'll do round three when we return right after this. Final round of the Goats in a Bad Way draft for week two. Christopher David Sims, you are up. All right, here we go. I, I mean, Joe Burrow. I think that's my third pick. Joe Burrow. Man, I want to, you know, almost all your heroes. I know Zach Wilson, Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow. Who's we don't next? pull punches. Aaron Rodgers. We don't pull punches. Wow. That's right. Uh, no, but I mean, first off, I mean, that game was there to be had for the Bengals. It was there. It was seven three. Justin Fields was in. The Bears' offense was really struggling, and one on four straight series. Uh, Higgins fumbled as they were driving, and then Joe Burrow threw three interceptions on three plays in a row. And that, to me, go in a bad way. They could have stole a game in Chicago uh, last week, and, and they blew that opportunity. We can't let Greg Joseph off the hook you, because he not only missed a 37-yarder to win the game, he missed an extra point that kept the game from being tied yeah, that's right. in that moment. Right. Not just a, a one-point deficit. Get him, Mike. And we do have to point out um, – because it's been five days, we forget about the Thursday night game, the Dexter Lawrence offside or not offside. I don't know who the GOAT is there. Lawrence shouldn't have gotten himself into the danger zone, but I still don't think he was offside. He wasn't. There is there is sideline video that the league has not released. The league has instead leaked to the Washington Post that it believes he was offside. Release the video. Let's yeah. see it. No. That cost the Giants the game. No. Referee, that cost them the game. And then also the bad holding call on Daniel Jones' long touchdown run. Referees goat in a bad way. That's it for today. Enjoy your Tuesday. See you tomorrow. See ya.
Time now for PFT on Yahoo Sports. Peter King, Mike Florio, reviewing all the biggest news in the National Football League. The Packers look putrid week one in the 38-3 loss to the Saints. They turn it around Monday night home opener, Lambeau Field, 35-17 win over the Lions. Peter King, does that win put the Packers back among the NFL elite? You mean the win that uh, they trailed the putrid Detroit Lions at halftime at home? I mean, that one. Why? Why would that? Why would beating the Detroit Lions at home, which was a little bit of a struggle, prove anything about anything? I mean, I never thought the Packers weren't among the elite uh, because look, it's a seventeen-game season, and sometimes you stink. That's all there is to it. They stunk week one. They were almost disinterested in week one. The only thing that I take out of the Monday night game is this. They saw that their house was on fire and they needed to put it out. And they did. Big deal. I, I, don't, I don't view what happened on Monday night as particularly telling other than it showed that they still can be a powerhouse offensive team. Now, Mike, what would worry me a little bit is the fact that, you know, for a good portion of that game, the Lions were able to get chunks of yards on that Zadarius Smith-less defense. So to me, I, I, I'm not overly impressed with what happened on Monday night, nor do I think it really matters in the grand scheme of things. I agree with you completely. Last night was avoiding the five-alarm fire. That's all it was. The issues are still there. The defense is a work in progress under new coordinator Joe Barry. Mike Pettin was fired after the 2020 season. And now what they have to do is go to San Francisco and beat the 49ers and then come home and beat the Steelers. That's how you reassert yourself as among the NFL's elite, beating on your punching bag, your annual punching bag at home, that doesn't prove anything other than you still know how to punch your punching bag. Okay, fine. Now go to San Francisco and beat the 49ers, a 49ers team that isn't in the same precarious position it was in when the Packers beat them last year. So, Mike, you know, this will be the fourth time in 22 months the Packers have played a game at Levi's Stadium. The entire NFC West, the other three teams in the NFC West, have played a total of four games in San Francisco in the last 22 months. What does that mean? I don't know. I just like the stat. But here's what I think happens with San Francisco. Okay, When you look at the 49ers, you see a team, basically, that is more like the 2019 team that killed the Packers twice than the 2020 team, which was all beat up, hurt, and lame when the Packers showed up. So now this is the measuring stick game for the Green Bay Packers. In my opinion, if the Packers go out there, they play a competitive game, 35-31 either way, that's an encouraging sign. The Packers are winning this division. They, are, they just are. But the problem with trying to project anything based on be, beating the Detroit Lions, as you say, it's just, it's meaningless. This is the week that matters. Yeah, you are absolutely right. And it's a short week from one primetime game 
to another primetime game. And I remember after they got blown out in the regular season in 2019, I went back and watched all the game, and I identified like three little moments where if this just goes the other way, you know, if they don't get caught in a bad coverage with George Kittle, whatever the case may be, they, they, could, they could win this. And I convinced myself that they could beat the 49ers, and they still gave up 37 points in the rematch. 37 in the regular season, 37 in the rematch. If they give up 37 on Sunday night, they're not going to beat the San Francisco 49ers. The only good news is they do have a bunch of injuries at running back in San Francisco, but they still have most of their key players. They didn't have them last year. So, Peter, I agree with you. It doesn't prove anything. All it proves is it's not a full-blown disaster in Green Bay yet. We'll see what happens on Sunday night at San Francisco. He's Peter King. I'm Mike Florio. We'll see you all season long for more PFT on Yahoo Sports Video. You went with the you went with the Kramer. You stink. <laughs> you stink. Sister Roberta. I think we can take out arguably. I agree. All right. <laughs> Time now for more PFT on Yahoo Sports Conversation. Peter King, Mike Florio here with you. Biggest stories in the National Football League. Tom Brady, Buccaneers, still among the best in the NFL. And this week, Peter, is the 20th anniversary of the moment that Tom Brady took over for Drew Bledsoe in the 2001 season after Drew Bledsoe had an unfortunate encounter with Mo Lewis along the sideline. Serious injury, Brady enters. What is the one thing that stands out to you from that First season of Tom Brady 20 years ago, 2001. Mike, during Super Bowl week, before the Patriots played the Rams, I remember I was the pool reporter for the NFL covering the Patriots during that Super Bowl week. And I remember the bit of the uneasy truce between Drew Bledsoe and Tom Brady. You remember, in the AFC Championship game at Pittsburgh, the, the Patriots won that game, and Drew Bledsoe had to come in and sort of save New England's bacon. So there was this decision. Is Belichick going back to Brady, or is he not? And, and, and so that week, that week I, at those practices, I'll just never forget being out there and sort of watching the two of them together. And look, Bledsoe was the ultimate gentleman. But you could just tell he was just burned that he had played so well in the championship game and gotten them over the hump and back into the Super Bowl. He thought it was his job, and Bill Belichick didn't think so. That will be my everlasting memory from that season. And, Peter, I was at that game as a fan. PFT had launched just a couple of months earlier. My nephew and I went to that game, and I remember Tom Brady went out with a knee injury. And Bledsoe came in, they won the game, and as I was leaving the stadium, I thought, we're going to see Bledsoe. Because remember, it was a one-week turnaround. Because of 9-11, the season got bumped back, they didn't have the two-week window, Brady's injured, hey, it's Bledsoe, he's back, baby, he's going back to the Super Bowl, we'll see if he can beat the Rams. And he believed he should have been 
the starter. And that just shows you the resolve that Bill Belichick had to stick with Brady, even with that knee injury, got him together. And the other thing that stands out for me, Peter, from that Super Bowl, if you go back and watch the TV copy, when it's tied up late and the Patriots get the ball back and inevitably drive down for the game-winning field goal, John Madden advises uh, against playing or advises I against trying to get field that. goal position. <laughs> Let's play for overtime. Nope. Nope. This isn't yeah. you, you don't know Tom Brady well enough yet. And I give John Madden the benefit of the doubt because I thought the same thing. We didn't know enough about Tom Brady. But now you know you but put the ball in Brady's my, hands and wait for magic. I'll tell you, I remember that post game. And remember that drive from the Patriots started at their 17 yard line. Okay. And <clears throat> when they started that drive, remember It was the J.R. Redmond drive. It was the Troy Brown drive. It was the safe, safe drive. And that's why, in my opinion, they trusted Tom Brady. Hey, listen, don't turn it over. Make only safe throws here. And that is what, to me, won that game. Tom Brady knowing exactly what to do in in, 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 in each particular case and knowing not to take that chance, not to go downfield. Just dink and dunk and try to let J.R. Redmond, Troy Brown, and whoever else make plays down the stretch. They made enough, and then and the the, the postseason legend of Adam Vinatieri with that 48-yarder uh, just grew life. And that was the first of seven, and Brady now 44, 20 years later, working on number eight, maybe number nine, maybe number 10, who the heck knows with that guy an amazing run greatest player in nfl history and this is a topic for another day but if he gets to number eight you're going to hear more and more people raise that question peter of whether he's the greatest athlete of all time in any sport i'm not ready to even get close to that yet but if if this guy keeps pushing deeper into his 40s and keeps playing at this level it's going to be a fair topic for conversation that's it for now he's peter king i'm mike florio it's pft on yahoo sports we'll see you here next time Treat dad to the good stuff at Nordstrom Rack and save big. Father's Day is Sunday, June 16th, and Nordstrom Rack's got gifts dad will love up to 60% off. Shirts, activewear, watches, cologne, denim, and more. Find amazing deals on Tommy Bahama, Cole Haan, Original Penguin, and Vince. Great brands, great prices. So get to your Nordstrom Rack store now and make dad's day with gifts up to 60% off. One, two, Three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.